from the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth, a worldly story told by a group of travellers, a history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of... Four, 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 triple, 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 Z. We will hear a documentary called Strength and Pride by Corey Green, who describes the experiences of Dawn, who is an elder from Brisbane. And in the second half of the show, you will hear excerpts from my conversation with Margie Byrne, who is the Assistant Director of the National Library of Australia and the keeper of a special collection of oral history interviews held by the National Library in Canberra. And you will hear some of the voices of those interviews too. Our next story comes from a documentary produced by Corey Green. It's a story about the stolen generations. You're going to be hearing some excerpts from a 30-minute long featured documentary by the name of Strength and Pride. And we're going to put a link to the full feature on our Facebook page. I first met Dawn at the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy in Musgrave Park. Under the trees on a sunny day, she told everyone the story I'm about to recount, how she was a child slave at the All Hallows Convent in Brisbane in the 1950s and 60s, and she doesn't know why. I mean, we were only little. We were only young, like 11 and 12 year old, until, oh, I can't remember. Might have been 18, 19 or 20 or something when we'd come home. Used to come over and let the door open the door up and let us out at six o'clock in the morning to go to work. Six or seven o'clock in the morning you'd have to be up to go and cook or sweeping, polishing, kitchen duties, laundry duties. When I talk about slavery, I'm talking about the less common definition of slavery. I'm not saying that Aboriginal people were legally the property of the Queensland government to be bought and sold, but that they were under the Queensland government's complete control. The Queensland Government used this control to not only take Aboriginal land, but to use Aboriginal people as cheap, involuntary labour. I've heard lots of elders telling similar stories of being slaves under the 1939 Aboriginals Preservation and Protection Act Queensland. It's shocking to me that most people who aren't Aboriginal have never heard of this, when it's such an integral part of Aboriginal elders' living history. This story in particular caught my interest because I was a student at All Hallows. Not only that, but I thought I could help answer Dawn's question as to why she was taken away from her family and treated this way, because one of the nuns who maintains the archives at All Hallows is an old family friend. The more I dug through the information, the more obvious it became that I was protected by my white privilege from the awful things that were done to benefit me and people like me. So here's the guts of it. In 1958, at the age of 11, Isabel Dawn Daylight was taken from her happy, comfortable family home in Churchill, Ipswich, and was forced to work under lock and key at the All Hallows Convent in Brisbane. This kind of child slavery was a common practice, 
and was perfectly legal treatment of an Aboriginal Queenslander at that time. Until the age of 11, Dawn Daylight had lived with her family and attended Churchill State School. Then, for reasons still unknown to her, she was taken to the House of Mercy, which is a part of the All Hallows Convent, and placed with the children who were under care and control orders as wards of the state. There she was forced to work for the Sisters of Mercy as a domestic for approximately the next nine years before once again being returned to her family home. During that time, she was completely separated from her family, except for her two sisters Margaret and Carol, who suffered similar treatment. Many elders describe life under the 1939 Aboriginals Preservation and Protection Act of Queensland as slavery, but the white history that I was taught at places like All Hallows says that the act was a misguided but well-intentioned attempt to force Aboriginal Queenslanders to assimilate into English settler culture. The aim of assimilation is disgusting in itself, but it actually doesn't fit Dawn's experience. Dawn lived through Queensland government policies that resulted in separation from her family, imprisonment, forced work and stolen wages, instead of a childhood and an education. It is important to acknowledge this history before healing can begin. The Daylight family were as free as Queensland Aboriginals could be in 1958. At this time, every part of Aboriginal people's lives was controlled by the 1939 Aboriginals Preservation and Protection Act, known simply as the Act. The Act controlled Aboriginal people's movements, their relationships, their work, everything. Aboriginal people lived in districts, each controlled by so-called protectors. Aboriginal people could not choose if to work, where to work, or their working conditions. No one was allowed to employ an Aboriginal person without the permission of a protector. If an employer wanted an Aboriginal worker, they would apply to the protector outlining the job and the protector would choose someone they thought would be appropriate. Then the protector would negotiate the pay and conditions with the employer. The protector would further control how much of their wages an Aboriginal person could access and how much the protector would control through a trust. The Aboriginal person in question was never really consulted about this deal, more just told about it after it had happened. As well as that, the local protector had control over Aboriginal people's land and property. No one was allowed to trade or barter with an Aboriginal person without the protector's permission. No one was allowed to give any land or property to an Aboriginal person or let an Aboriginal person live on their property. The sum effect of these laws was that Aboriginal people could not support themselves outside of the control of the protector. This slavery doesn't appear to have an age limit. The Act specifically gives the Governor and Council the authority to, and I quote, prescribe the conditions on which Aboriginal children may be apprenticed or placed in service. I spoke to Helen James, who works in collections management at the Old Hallows Convent Mercy Heritage Centre. And a lot of the girls who were sent here were wards of the state? Yeah, were court-ordered to come. And they were kind of, um, I think Peter said they were hard cases? Yeah, yeah. that's why they were under care and control. Yeah. Do you know exactly what a care and control order is? It was just the police would find them, you know, somewhere on the street having a hard life or drunk or, you know, parents weren't looking after them, all those sorts of things. Mm. Um, and the court basically just took them in and um, placed them in different places and one of them was here and Woolawin. And we never never got to my mum again until I was 90 years old. 
And I, I say to people, I'm one of the fortunate ones. I found my family again. We had a lot of Aboriginal people I never found our family. And constant craving has always been. At All Hallows, Dawn and her sisters were kept in the House of Mercy, which was a prison-like structure at the back of the convent. As Dawn and her sisters wanted to return home, perhaps it was thought that it would be better to keep them locked up. Helen James from the Mercy Heritage Centre described the area to me. House of Mercy is the U-shape at the back of the convent. Yep. The bottom is St Augustine's, the top is St Catherine's. And the nuns and the girls who worked here were yeah. domestics, is that right? Lived, yes, and they lived in um, the House of Mercy. And what kind of work did they do? Um, cooking, cleaning, whatever needed doing. During the day, the girls were led out of their rooms into a larger compound, which included a kitchen and the nuns' dining room. Girls who were better behaved were allowed out of the compound to work in the laundry. Had Dawn and her sisters not been Aboriginal, they would not have been working at such a young age. And I used to remember going along these big corridors and also setting up these tables, all these big tables at a boarding school, all had us had a boarding school for girls. Mm. And I think I used to go between the boarding school and the convent kitchen, working around the convent kitchen and in sometimes working in the convent laundry. So were the domestics work who were working here, were they looking after the convent or the boarding girls? Uh, convent usually. Children were sent away from the missions and settlements at an early age to work. The sending of young people to employment not only fitted the rhetoric of retraining and independence, but was a double economic advantage to the government, saving the cost of support as well as accumulating income. I think if you think about young, young kids being uh, working as slaves, because I think that's what we were basically... Can you call that being, uh, being looked after well when you're a young child, young girl working? How can we ask a question like that that says, uh, were, you, were you looked after well? Maybe we did get fed, maybe we did get a bed. I don't remember the nuns being uh, nasty to me or anything like that, but I certainly didn't want to stay there for the rest of my life and work for that kind of money. I wanted to be home with my family. And I mean, three pounds a week for, for what, whatever work you were doing, I don't think that's a much, but I think there should have been some kind of um, money put in trust. If there was money put in trust, where is the money that was put in trust? And why didn't we get it? Margaret got no spending money at all. Many people are still fighting for their wages and working under the Act. The Queensland Government offered 2000 to $4,000 compensation per person, which many found inadequate for a lifetime of work. To get it, an applicant needed official government records, but these are well known to be incomplete. As such, 37% of applicants, including Dawn, were rejected.
You just heard their excerpts from Strength and Pride, which is a documentary produced by Corey Green and available online. There's going to be a link to it on our Facebook page. We believe porridge, I'm going insane. We believe porridge, gonna wreck my brain. Stir in treacle, make them taste sweet. Put them along the stove and turn them up heat. Milk from powder tin, milk from goat. We believe porridge, pour them down throat. Mmm, mmm, mission food. Sent from heaven must be good. Mmm, mmm, mission food. Sent from heaven must be good. Never mind the weevils, never mind the taste. Missionary sheep and say, don't you waste. We will eat porridge, make them pretty strong. Put them along a damper, you can't go wrong. Mmm, mmm, mission food. Sent from heaven must be good. Mmm, mmm, mission food. Sent from heaven must be good. Bless him, little weevil, and bless him, little me. We've been like a trick em, just to see. Catch him, little weevil, put him in the tea. Only pile a drink him up, missionary. Mmm, mmm, mission food. Sent from heaven must be good. Mmm, mmm, mission food. Sent from heaven must be good. Protect a heap and come and give us daily ration. Cook and plenty food for him, then weevils we've been mashing. Weevils in the sago, weevils in the rice. Protect we'll bring you topical interviews with individuals from our community about the news and issues affecting them. Produced by Brisbane Community Radio Stations 4EB and 4ZZZ. Hi and welcome to this week's edition of Fair Comment, coming to you across Australia through the Community Radio Network. You're with Ellie. And Heath. Fair Comment contributor and Zed Digital's Indigibris host, Christy McMahon, speaks to Birapai woman, Auntie Jackie Travis, about her life and her experiences being taken from her mother and having her son taken from her. You're from Tari? Yes, I'm Birapai woman. When my mother was born, she was only a small baby and the welfare that stepped in and took her. And then from there on, she went from home to home to different homes and ended up doing I don't know what. When I was born, they took me and put me in babies' homes and adult homes and from home to home to home again till I grew up and I finished up in jail. And then when I had my first child, they took him. And then three of us never, ever come together again. Uh, my mother, I heard my mother was dead. I met two of her sisters, but that's all. And then I found out who my family is. It's the Bug family, and I've been researching it, and it's a real lot of people that I'm related to now, and a real lot of people that I know. Why, why do you think they took your child away? Because the colour of my skin, I'm so fair, and uh, I'm Aboriginal. So they said, well, we'll pluck her and try and turn me into a right woman. But it didn't work. So they were trying to hide the fact that you were Aboriginal? Yeah, yeah. How does that make you feel? Well, at the time I didn't feel anything because I didn't know. I was just a small child. I started to get educated and I can't believe it. That you know, it's, And now it's happening all over again. Nothing's changed. Well, you've obviously, you've been trying to find him, yeah. haven't you? Yeah, I had. I finally gave up. I'm too old now, I'm 76. Uh, I, I'm looking it up on the internet to see where I can find, but there's not very many black records on the internet. But I was living in Warhope and I wrote down to Tari Genealogy and um, asked them if they knew somebody or if they, you know, could find anything. And they said, well, we actually can't find anything for you, but I'll give you a phone number, left me phone number there. And they gave it to someone who gave it to someone who gave it to someone. And then I was in Queensland seeing a friend of mine and I got a phone call and they asked me 
what my name was, what my mother's name was, and she said, I'm your mother's sister. And I just, all the blood run down to my feet, so I came down here and we met. I met two of them actually, one since dawn, the other one lives in Foster. So I found my roots at least, I'm a very proud woman. What was that like, meeting them for the first time? Incredible, it was. There was tears and laughs and we didn't know what to do. Just talked and talked. So they were your your mother's sister. Did they tell you about your mother? No, because she was taken and they weren't. She was taken and a boy was taken, a brother. And then the rest of them just left alone. Whether it was because my grandmother was a single mother or not, I don't know, and then got married and had the rest of the kids, I don't know. Those who will be listening to this out there, do you have any words of support or advice or anything that you want to say to people who have experienced the same things that you've experienced? Yes, dig into it. Dig into it and see what your background's like. And you'll be welcome with open arms, I'm sure. I'm just one of the Corys that the war out now. Feel more whole when you found out that you were Aboriginal? Yeah, because I thought I was standing there and thinking to myself, I've got nobody. Everyone's got someone, you know, who have I got? And then I got the phone call. I thought, oh, I have got someone after all. <laughs> it was wonderful, really. Are you still angry and hurt by what happened? I say I'm not, but I do a lot of art and I think I take it out there. Probably it hasn't left me. That was 76 year old Birapai woman, Auntie Jackie Travis. The day of the apology was the 13th of February, 2008. I was sitting in the press gallery in Parliament House, watching the Prime Minister as he presented his apology 
to look around that chamber and see the galleries full of people, black faces, white faces, people that I knew, people that I didn't know. And then to look down on the floor of the chamber itself and see those elders from the stolen generations that, that were acknowledged, those elders representing many, many more people of stolen generations, seeing them sitting on the floor of the chamber, a few feet away from where the Prime Minister was presenting or delivering his apology. It was an historical moment because for the last 12 years or more we've had a very mean-spirited Prime Minister. Sorry was not a part of his vocabulary. People were very emotional. Blacks and whites had tears streaming down their faces. Others just had a watery eye like myself. It brought a tear to a lot of eyes. And I was thinking of my grandfather, Sam Watson, taken away along with a, a lot of other young boys of the same age group. He was taken away from Nebo, taken by white pastoralists that came around in a horse and cart, and those young boys were just grabbed and thrown in the back of that cart. He never saw his mum again. And the impact on my mother and her brothers and sisters, it took them a long time to find out about their, their country, their language, their songs and dances. That grandfather Sam was flogged by a dog chain, tied up by a dog chain, flogged by that dog chain if he spoke the language or sung any of the songs or done any dances. So that cultural business ceased when he was taken away. And that's who that apology was meant for, people like grandfather Sam Watson. And there's many of those people across the country, almost every Aboriginal family in this country has that experience in their family somewhere along the line. That step taken by the Prime Minister with his apology on that day has made a lot of mainstream Australians feel it is now OK to recognise the struggle of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. As opposed to the previous Prime Minister, where we had racists coming out of the woodwork, it's created a change, it's, it's a new era in our time. And mind you, saying sorry is only the very first step. But it's a major acknowledgement. It was a major event for us. But we've got a long way to go. Documentaries on Global, the special monthly program of documentaries presented by the Outside In crew from the Multicultural Group. Each month we showcase the work of a local radio documentary maker who explores a different aspect of what it feels like to live in Brisbane in 2015. 
In the minutes ahead, you will hear sections from an interview recorded with Margie Byrne, who is the Assistant Director for Australian Material at the National Library of Australia. Margie is responsible for the oral history collections of the library, which include more than 600 hours of recordings with people from the stolen generations and some of the people who were involved in administering these policies as well. In the minutes ahead, you will hear selections from the recordings held in the National Library of Australia. The vast majority of the recordings from the oral history projects are available online. You can visit the National Library website at nla.gov.au and search their catalogue. Girls in our town, they just haven't a care. You see them on Saturday floating on air. Painting their toenails, washing their hair. Maybe tonight it'll happen. There's a very strong sense people have that they want the story to be known. They don't want it to be forgotten or to be lost. So putting it on the record in a oral history project, particularly run by a memory institution like the National Library, is really important. At the time, it was also felt that, and this is often the way we approach oral history, but it was a requirement of government that, if you like, it be what we call a rounded oral history. So um, we wanted to get stories from not just the stolen generations themselves, but also people who'd been involved in removing Um, children from their families, so that might be missionaries, it might be social welfare, um, staff members, police, um, and also politicians. One of the interviewees was a former Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. People's views about the removal of um, children could be divergent, so some people who'd been stolen as kids still believed that very positive things had come out of that particularly education, was often something that they rated very highly. And I think it's probably true to say that people who'd been involved, say, running homes or removing children or looking after children once they had been removed from their family and community, would also have different views on it. Some of them would think it had been a good thing. I guess with the passage of time and and changed attitudes, um, some would also feel regret about the role that they had played. Most stories aren't black and white, there's a lot of nuance and grey. There's an interview with one foster father who, for instance, talks about his feeling about the loss of culture. He knew that he'd given love and all the important things in life in terms of education and material well-being to the Aboriginal child raised in, in his family but um, he, he was very aware of the, what that he couldn't provide, the loss of culture and so on. So that's the advantage of interviewing people from different perspectives. to give them uh, everything, the, um, everything that we could uh, and in 
line with the foremost thinking in childcare, Dr. Burton had gone into all this, uh, it was decided that they should live in cottage homes, not in dormitories, and that there'd be a cottage mother in each home. Uh, and I was like a cottage mother. And then uh, the idea was that the children should be brought up to be able to take their place in white society uh, and to have every advantage that every white child would have as far as we could do it, both in schooling and in social graces and whatever. Uh, and we were also seeking to train them to be able to work themselves. Croker Island uh, the, was, to, was eventually a cattle station as well as a children's home. And for the boys, they were to, uh, they learned carpentry in helping to build. There was a certain group that uh, helped to learn carpentry and helped to build some of the cottages. Uh, they learnt uh, animal husbandry and cattle work and butchering, gardening. Uh, we had a, our own garden. Of course, the things have to begin, so it wasn't that way before they were evacuated, but gradually we got horses and um, cattle, and so gradually it was built up. We had our own agriculturalist and and cattleman and so on. So they were taught taught to be able to take their place in in society the same as any other child. And we wanted them to to have the very best of being able to, to take their place in that way. And what about the girls? What sort of expectations were there for the girls? Well, originally we used to hear we had heard, you know, you hear things on the grapevine. These children can't get any further than, um, they'd never go to high school, you know, so their brain wasn't, <laughs> wasn't as good as anybody else's, which was so ridiculous. And this was, we were setting out to show that this was not the case. Uh, it was also said that they couldn't do anything else but domestic work, which was also so wrong. And so we took them as far as we could on Croker up to the intermediate, what was the three years of high school. Director-General here at the National Library responsible for Australian collections, including oral history. I came to the library in 1999. The oral history project, bringing them home oral history project, had started in that year. How many 
interviews are there in the collection? Oh, there's more than 340, so it's a huge project for an oral history project. But the majority of the interviews are with Indigenous people about their experience of removal. Well, I think more than 300 uh, are with Indigenous people. Yes. Yes, it was a very happy life as far as, uh, as a child, um, you know, realises uh, you have that freedom and um, uh, especially if, yeah, the happiness comes from being with your family, grandparents, and mothers and your extra grandparents and your extra mothers and uh, because that's within the Aboriginal uh, family structure. Whoever your uh, mother's uh, cousin is, the, she's your uh, mother as well and the same as whoever your grand grandmother's uh, uh, cousins or sisters are, they, they're your grandparents too. So we used to always go out hunting, doing this, uh, things like most people do, uh, have to work to, to live and that means uh, walking, gathering wild food and that and catching all sorts of things like lizards and printies and rabbits, digging rabbits out and things like that and uh, gathering wild fruits like the wild fig and the wild tomatoes and, and the uh, wild digging the uh, wild uh, um, potatoes out, yams and things like that and um, so and uh, also digging for honey ants which uh, was one of the uh, delicacies uh, within the Aboriginal uh, 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 diet and that so um, it was a happy time then because at night time you know every, everybody's been out and walking quite long distances and um, uh, and then um, coming back to the family group again um, you sat and listened to your grandparents and your mothers and fathers and, and uh, uh, the family uh, to stories and that's when we're, the, our stories were passed down and and because uh, after a long day's hunting and that well yeah, in no time you soon dropped off to sleep but that was the uh, procedure every every night that it was um, um, storytelling nights and uh, but during the day you were learning when you were hunting and uh, gathering food and that and it was the same, you know, with the men went out hunting for, you know, wallabies or um, cannulas in my language or euros in the white language and um, emus and uh, all sorts of other uh, food that men, uh, I suppose, they're, uh, they're, that's their role of um, supplying the meat supply. Whereas uh, women, they uh, they were the ones, uh, you know, ga just gatherers. They were the gatherers. So, really, I had uh, to me it was a happy life, and uh, that was one of the things I really, uh, you know, missed uh, when uh, when we were taken away. When were you taken away? Uh, I was taken away. We were taken away towards the end of 1934. That was once the uh, protector of Aborigines, who was Mr. Penhall at that time, when he was notified that my father had 
passed on. Well, that was the time he gave his order for um, uh, for um, the police to go out and pick us up. And you were about five or six. Yeah, mm. about six, I think I was. Do you and remember just, that day? Oh, yeah, I'll never forget it. Yeah, I remember that day. How to kneel, but your history couldn't hide the genocide. Hypocrisy to whispers real. Why your Jesus said you're supposed to give the oppressed a better deal. We say to you, yes, white man, thou shalt not steal. Oh, yeah, I let you better heal. Well, Job and That blazing sun go down behind a cold tree mountain ridge. The land's out, heritage and spirit here. The rightful culture's black. And we're sitting here just wondering when we're gonna get that land back. They taught us, Whoa, black woman, thou shalt not steal. And John, what were you told? about why you were taken away. Who t did anyone tell you anything at all? Um, no one ever told me why I was taken away. Uh, in in um, Now I'll rephrase that. I think um, uh, when I was taken away, I was taken away with many of my relations. And um, uh, we were told at the home in Malgoa that uh, uh, we were there to be civilized and uh, we were to not to uh, be uh, heathens and uh, uh, not to be part of uh, the Aboriginal way any longer. And as a result, we were told not to speak our language and uh, I had to, um, I can only speak Yanua and, and a little bit of English, but... Uh, uh, I had to learn English uh, as part of my new life and uh, uh, because of the, the the rules in the home that we were living in uh, with the missionaries uh, not to speak the language those uh, uh, women in particular were very strong on uh, reinforcing who we were and uh, they never let me forget at least who I was, where I come from, who my family was, and particularly my mother and my relations up there. And uh, sometimes it used to be told in whispers. Uh, others when we were just walking out, hunting out in the bush, uh, gathering food, you know, hunting for rabbits, uh, goannas, uh, freshwater turtles, and uh, anything that we can eat from the bush uh, in and around Mulgo and Mount Wilson. But um, uh, yes, I suppose we were very made. We were very much made to feel that we were uh, different. We were very much made to feel that we had to forsake all those aspects that uh, being Aboriginal, and we had to embrace um, Christianity in a very um, uh, strong way, but also um, uh, just uh, forsake all those aspects of Aboriginality as part of the culture. The um, uh, the language and any other things that pertain to the bush. We were never encouraged to maintain contact with the people up there. In fact, that was actively discouraged. Mm. 
Ready for that petrol man said friend hey where you going Said somewhere there ain't no neon There ain't no telephone man said Sound like you're heading for the desert land Where a soul can sit and feel The essence of eternity I just slid behind that wheel of the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission report that a large-scale oral history project should be done. And the reason for that was that people had given testimony about their experiences to the um, Human Rights Commission inquiry. Those stories were gathered in confidence and so it was felt that it was really important that the stories be told in a public way, hence the recommendation that there should be a large-scale oral history project. And um, the library was funded by the federal government to undertake this project over four years. I'm not alone. I'm not disowned. I'm coming home. There were people who were um, stolen in the 1930s and they were being interviewed as old people in the early years of this century. And then there were people who were stolen, uh, stolen in, the, in the 50s and 60s because, as we know, removal um, continued well into the 70s and, of course, is still an issue today. The river bank, where the calm is here to welcome you so welcome so at that stage she rang me up she said i've just contacted this organization for you but they need to hear from you directly and there's a man called stan who's waiting for your phone call and Somehow I had an image pop into my head of this poor man watching this phone and waiting for it to ring and he can't go to the toilet and he can't make his coffee until I ring and let him off the hook. And I was kind of, although I've always wanted to know, at this point I was really nervous. And uh, I rang Stan and I said, look, I explained about this kind of strange lady who reckoned that I was Aboriginal and knew all about me and told me to come and give you a ring and I said to him, look, I really don't know. All I can tell you is that I'm adopted and that I have brown skin, brown hair and brown eyes. And he just said, well, hop on the train, come on down and we'll have a look at you. <laughs> and that's pretty much what I did. That afternoon I went down, I went to, and this was the first time in my life I'd ever met Aboriginal people. And he showed me many forms, consent forms, forms for him to access my records, forms for this and that, and I didn't have much money. There were fee waivers. There was all sorts of things that he did for me. And we spent maybe a couple of hours talking about things and about the new laws changing, and 
And I remember looking at him and thinking, well, what do you think? What do you reckon? And he said, definitely, sister girl, he said. A week later, he rang me back up at home and said, um, are you sitting down? Well, I always worry about people who ask you if you're sitting down before they tell you something on the phone because it's usually pretty drastic. And in one week, this is what amazed me, after 32 years of not knowing, of all those years of wondering, in one week he found information. He said, I have found out that your mother's name was Heather Wilson. He said that he gave me the time of my birth, 11.15pm on that night. I had never known that. I remember when I was young, all my friends went out to get our horoscopes done and I was the only one who couldn't get it done because I didn't have the time of my birth. All the other girls had their birth certificates and they were just little things like that. I, I know they sound really like trivial and silly, and but back then it was just one more kind of nail in that coffin of not knowing. It was just another reason that I was different. And so all of them added up to this great, as I call, the hole in my heart. And so when I finally got the phone call from Stan, he gave me my mother's name, Heather Wilson, that she was 27 years old when, when I was born. And as I said, um, her blood group and mine are the same. We're both A positive and information that, that I had never, ever had before. I remember getting very angry thinking the wave of someone's pen in Parliament was the thing that stopped me from knowing that I imagined was there a file like a filing system and that it had all of this information locked away all those years it was locked under key and now it was okay to know I, I got really angry because it happened so quickly the not knowing to the knowing one week and so I took at that stage I said stop exactly stop I'll run and get a pen and paper and I wrote it all down and he said at the very end of it, and your mother was of Aboriginal heritage, that means so are you. Welcome home, sister. And so that was a very amazing feeling. For the first time, 32, I had the answer. I was Aboriginal. I was Koori. Life is like a kayak. You keep on searching for the flow. Battle in the whitewash You've got an anchor but no rope And so you row, row Into the rapids, feel the flow, flow As you clear the edges, float on down To the river bank Where the calm is The Triple Z links with the Aboriginal community had been well and truly established. Lines of communication opened through Triple Z involvement in the Rock Against Racism, the Commonwealth Games protests. You know, we kind of proved our credentials, if you like, to the Murray community. There was general discussion at the station about how we would have Murray involvement. There had been no specific block programming of a particular cultural group, so that was an issue. The decision was taken at a collective meeting that we would offer the Murray community an hour or so of time. On TV, I saw a 
There was a, a lady, Louise Butt, who kept on ringing me up and saying, you know, you've got to create some sort of Murray presence at 4 Z. And we eventually uh, started the Murray Hour program there. It made history because it was the first time, I suppose, that we were able to hear Indigenous music, the first time we were able to express our opinions ourselves, and also allowed us to go on and make the point that Indigenous media is an essential service because the mainstream media is incapable of serving our needs. It's incapable of expressing us in our terms. But once we were actually given time slots where people in the community where, where they knew they could hear our own music, Maria became pretty famous. We'd play the program of a Saturday morning and we might go to a party on Saturday night and we'd hear that same program being, being played at the, at the parties. People used to tape it because the music was hard to buy, it was hard to find and there wasn't much of it. Uh, it was very popular. Triple Z, they were constant in their the support for the, the Murray community. And they had to go through a lot of strife themselves. They eventually got kicked out of the university there and they had to broadcast from Mount Cutha there for, I think, more than six months from a caravan. Credit where it's due and Triple Z, they, they did that. Poor fellas, I think Murray was might have been one of the big reasons why they did get the final push. We didn't make any bones about the fact that we was living in, in racist times under a racist government with a racist police force. I think people needed to know that. They didn't need to be told that the police commissioner was an honourable man or the, the premier was a, an honourable man when we knew very well that they weren't. You Hello people, welcome to Murray Hour. The two introduction songs were the Kookaburra Song from Bamiel and one from Dennis Conlon and the Magpies called Brisbane Blacks. Incidentally, Dennis Conlon and the Magpies are now known as Mop and the Dropouts. My name is Alfred Chillingsworth and I'm from the Aboriginal and Island Childcare Agency situated at West End. Okay, let's go and listen to another song now called Fishing by Cuckles. Down to the water, gonna catch some fishes today. To feed my woman, my son, and my daughter. Times are hard, we're surviving this way. We're going fishing daytime. We're going fishing nighttime. We're going fishing daytime. We're going fishing nighttime, daytime. Pack our bag, we're leaving our broom town. Gonna hunt wild turkey today. The government said this bird is illegal, but our people we can change in my way. We go fishing daytime. We go fishing nighttime, daytime, yeah. Fishing daytime. We go fishing nighttime. We go fishing daytime. We go fishing nighttime, daytime. 
Well, I hope our brothers catch some yellow belly. That was a Noongar band from Western Australia. Over in Western Australia, they call black Noongar. Well, hello, Murray's, Curry's, Nungas and Noongars. I'm Toffee Wharton. I work for Opal Cultural Centre. And this next song I'd like to introduce is to all of my brothers and sisters who are there in jail and we're still thinking of them. This song is from Sherry Watkins from South Australia and it's called Prison Song. people my name's Ross Watson and uh, we've got about four of our young warriors from the south side to come in to introduce their song and uh, I'll just ask the, the lads now to say good day and let you know who they are hello my name's Alfred Wiley I'm from Kingaroy and hello mum Hello, my name's Joseph Landis. I'm from Sherberg, and I'd like to say hello to all my friends out there. Hello, my name is Matthew Gag. come from Sherberg, and I'd like to say hello to my sisters and brothers. Hello, my name is Eddie West. I come from Sherberg. I'd like to say hello to all my friends out in the street, and I'd like to put on a, a song on for us, a black boy for us. Of course you can on Triple Z here Thursday night.
Well, you are with Gay Waves, and uh, a very special Gay Waves tonight, actually. I had a wonderful day today. I went uh, joined the Murrays in their march from uh, Roma Street Forum to um, Musgrave Park, and uh, some really good memories from that trip, too. Like, I remember one particular incident where it slowed down really much along North Quay, and there was this bus, and this bus had all these people in it, and all the white people were just sitting there looking bored, and there was this one, she looked sort of Chinese, and she was waving madly at everyone. It was really, really fantastic. And, uh, yeah, it was just a really, really good day. Anyway, in keeping with that, we have with us tonight Doug, um, Doug Curran. How are you, Doug? Good, thank you. Uh, great. It's really good to have you with us. Um, nice to be here. Mm, as a Murray, well, we're going to be hopefully talking about <laughs> what it's like to be a gay Murray, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm sure I've got a lot of questions to ask you about that. Right. And I'm sure people out there have as well. But right. uh, where do you want to start? Because there's well, so much to um, talk about. Yeah. Well, I've uh, been in this Aboriginal Island community for quite some time now and working with Aboriginal people. Um, uh, most of the organisations that uh, are in Brisbane here all know uh, what my sexual preference is. They, I don't get rubbish by it, but as a, um, as a young uh, black person growing up, being gay, trying to find out what... Uh, what uh, sex that I did prefer, and I knew that uh, I was it was just the, the same sex as myself. So uh, it was hard really for me, I know it's hard for a lot of gay people uh, just being gay, but uh, for me growing up it was twice as hard because I was uh, a black gay person. Mm, mm. And uh, so until I was about 19 or 20, I used to always hide the fact that uh, I was um, e even gay, and uh, I knew that I was, but uh, being black and being gay was uh, a really hard thing around the time that, you know, I was growing up. Mm. Was that in your mind, or was that real? Uh, that was real. Mm. Um, <coughs> you know, a lot of people, uh, um, a lot of the permissive society that's uh, um, around today really can't understand why people are gay anyhow they think mm. it's a it's a True. dirty uh, a dirty thing but uh, then you know we have feelings the same as uh, heterosexual people and uh, I've uh, had a, a really good relationship that uh, with a fellow that I'd lived with for 17 years it's and a record uh, you know yes it's, it's an amazing record yeah uh, he died last year of cancer mm. and um uh, the 17 years, I think, that, uh, we've got our good times, the bad times, fights and that, but that happens in all types of marriage, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual or whatever. And uh, um, I think that um, my, uh, the relationship that we had for those 17 years has lasted a lot longer than there has been uh, heterosexual marriages. Oh, sure. Heterosexual marriage, I think it's two out of three now that break down within three yeah, years. Well, and that's what most gay men used uh, to aspire to. That's right. You know, it's only a piece of paper, really, that oh, it means um, nothing. Uh, to, le uh, to legally say that you can have sex. Mm. And, uh, yeah. you know, two people, uh, as long as I have been with my friend, uh, that we pledged our, um, our love for each other. Mm. And that's the way it has, had been until he died last year. Gay people have, do have love in their hearts. Mm. No, they think we are somehow subhuman, a subspecies. Yeah, that's right. I'd like to talk to you in a minute about uh, 
well, issues of racism, obviously, I really want to raise it, but I think we should have a bit of music first, what do you reckon? Yes, Rumpies? Nice. Yeah. Yeah, got to be strong, eh? You go, we're a rumpy band, got to be strong. We'll be back soon. I'm the dead hot, hot bitch. 